want our children to have the best chance to live fulfilling lives. But can you keep up with all the books and scientific research on parenting and fit the information into your own philosophy on how to raise kids? Welcome to Your Parenting Mojo, the podcast that does the work for you by investigating and examining respectful, research-based parenting tools to help kids thrive. Now, welcome your host, Jen Lumenlon. Welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. Before we get going with today's episode, I just wanted to chat with you again about the future of the show. And firstly, I want to send my really deepest gratitude out to all of you who took the time to respond to the little survey that we put in place last week about how I'm going to balance the amount of time and money it takes to keep the show running with some of the competing pressures I'm facing over the next few months. I mentioned it on the show and I also sent out an email to subscribers and I got absolutely swamped with responses. I can't tell you how heartwarming it is to receive email after email after email saying, I love your show. Thanks so much for the work that you're doing. Please keep it up. I do want to give three special shout outs though. Firstly to Oliver, who I think listens from Germany, whose kind and thoughtful email contains so much helpful information that he actually put an abstract at the top to summarize it for me. I think he comes from the same kind of scientific background that I do. Secondly, Tracy Henderson at Center Reach Communications, which doesn't seem to have a website, but you can find her on LinkedIn by searching for Tracy Henderson Center Reach Communications, who's kindly offered to help me with some PR outreach. So I'm very much looking forward to talking with her about that. And finally, to Jared Morris, who's the VP of Marketing for a company called Rainmaker Digital. His email touched me so much that I want to read the first part of it to you. It says, Jen, I'm a loyal and enthusiastic listener of your show. My wife and I both are, in fact. We're first-time parents with a nine-month-old daughter and have spent the last 18 months devouring many books and podcasts about parenting. We never miss an episode of your show and Janet Lansbury's show. So I want to thank you for all the research and care that you put into each episode. It really shows. I often listen to your shows more than once because they're so rich with information. Listening to your show has made us better parents already and certainly will moving forward. You're doing really, really important work. Jared went on to say that in his role at Rainmaker Digital, he actually has a podcast about podcasting and that his company runs courses on creating and selling online courses. So if you're interested in potentially starting your own podcast, or if you already have one and you want to make it better, you should check out his show. The link to find it is kind of long. So the best way I found is to Google showrunner podcast. And you can also see all of Rainmaker Digital's other products that help digital entrepreneurs be successful at rainmakerdigital.com. So now we're done with that infomercial. I want to say that Jared spent a considerable amount of time emailing back and forth with me this week about the different potential paths that I could pursue with the podcast. And ultimately, he helped me to refine the approach that all of the rest of you who emailed me suggested. So while some of you did say that you'd be okay with me putting advertising on the show, primarily because you just skipped through the ads, I am really not comfortable with it. The companies who want access to you, dear parents who will do anything for your child, are the kinds of companies whose marketing departments prey on your fears of your child not being perfect or of you not being the perfect parent so that they can sell you stuff. And I object to that on so many levels that I can't even count them all. And if I put those kinds of ads on the show, I would just feel grubby every time I publish an episode, which I don't want either for you or for me. So we're going to stay ad free. The only sort of related thing that I plan to do is to become an Amazon affiliate. 
So when I link to the books that I discuss on the show and you purchase the book through that link, I'll get a small kickback. And you won't notice any difference and you won't pay any more for the book by purchasing through me. So please do consider doing that. If you're going to buy a book that I recommend, you can do it by going to the episode page for whatever episode you're listening to and look for the link to the book that I mentioned in the references. And then that will just click through to Amazon from there. And if you really prefer to listen rather than reading, and we know you do because you listen to podcasts, then if you sign up for a free trial membership at audible.com, you actually get two free audiobooks to start and you can cancel at no cost before the end of the month and I still get a commission from them. So I'm in the process of getting that set up right now, but in the future when I mention books that are available on Audible, I'll also remind you of that free trial that you can get and if you sign up. So another option that I suggested last week was to put some content behind a paywall. And I have to say that most of you didn't love that idea, so we're not going to do that either. (laughs) But the majority of you were actually fine with me dropping the publication frequency to every other week, which will relieve a fair bit of pressure on me in terms of the amount of time it takes to research each episode over the next few months as I'm working on my next master's degree. And a surprising number of you said that while you didn't really want the episodes to be behind a paywall, that you very much appreciate the time and effort that it takes to produce these episodes, and that you'd be happy to contribute towards the cost of upkeep. And I have to say those costs are substantial. I actually pay about 1200 bucks a year to host the website and the audio content, and 30 bucks a month for the audio editing software, and another 10 bucks a month for the ability to send you emails. I actually hope that my husband doesn't listen to this episode because I'm not sure he'd realized it all added up to that much. So if you would like to help offset some of those costs, and we're not even talking about the 12 to 15 hours that it takes me to prepare for each episode here, but just the actual hard costs of running the show, I'd be very grateful. So to do this, you can go to the new page on my website at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash support. And you can see a cute picture of my daughter there as well. And if you scroll down to the bottom, there are a couple of PayPal buttons. One of those buttons will let you set up a monthly donation if you feel able to do that, and the other is for a one-time donation if that better fits with your budget. So kind of like we're so often told during public radio pledge drives, a recurring donation is obviously much more helpful to me because the costs of running the show are recurring, but I know that not everyone has the budget to do that. And like public radio, recurring donations allow me to not ask for donations as often. Because we all know how annoying those pledge drives are, so my goal here is to continue to put out content that you find useful and only as occasionally as possible to mention the opportunity to donate if you'd like to. So the last thing that I want to mention is that I'm also going to start running a newsletter in the weeks that I don't publish an episode. Because I'm still going to be reading and researching and thinking in those weeks, and I'm hoping that it won't take me a ton of time to send you some information on the things I've been learning about, perhaps some links with a short summary of what I thought you might find interesting and useful. But of course, the only way you can get that newsletter is if you're subscribed to the show, or I won't know your email address. So if you'd like to get on that list for the newsletter, then please head over to yourparentingmojo.com and to your email address in the box on the homepage and hit subscribe. And while you're over there, please do consider going to that support the show page and making a donation to keep us running. Thanks so much to everyone. I can't tell you how grateful I am for all of your support and all of the emails that I've received over the last week or so. It really does feel incredible. Let's get on with today's show. Now, it's no secret that I do some episodes of this show altruistically for you, dear listeners, because I'm not facing the situation that I'm studying, or at least not yet. I will say that eyebrows were raised in our house when I started researching the impact of divorce on children, but luckily for me, I don't need that episode yet at least. 
But today's episode is for me, and you guys are just along for the ride. Because, friends, we are in the thick of what I now know to be called oppositional defiance, otherwise known as, no, I don't want to insert activity here. There's actually an oppositional defiant disorder that's described in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is more commonly known as the DSM-5 because it's in its fifth revision. And I should say that the DSM is not infallible and is susceptible to societal trends. Homosexuality was defined as a mental disorder in the DSM until 1973. But right now, oppositional defiant disorder is in the DSM. It's defined as having four of a list of eight symptoms which fall into three major buckets. Number one, an angry or irritable mood. Number two, argumentative or defiant behavior. And number three, vindictiveness. And before you think, wait, I think I fit those characteristics on some days, I should point out that it's the persistence and frequency of those behaviors that should be used to distinguish behavior that's within normal limits from behavior that's symptomatic. For children younger than five years, the behavior should occur on most days for a period of at least six months. And for children older than five, it should be at least once a week for at least six months. There are additional criteria around whether the behavior is associated with distress in a particular setting or if it impacts negatively on social educational outcomes in a broad spectrum of settings. I'll put the link to the detailed criteria and the references in case you're worried your child might meet them, but today we're just going to talk about the non-clinical kind of oppositional defiance that can still be incredibly frustrating to deal with. According to one group of researchers, Few periods in development are more important than when parents' attempts to control and socialize children emerge in the second year. So as you might expect, we're going to need to sort through quite a bit of conflicting information here. So let's start why all this is important. And funnily enough, it actually goes back to the episodes we've done on culture. Our second episode, which was the first real episode of the show after the introductory one, was on how culture impacts our parenting. And then we just dived back into that topic again recently with the episode on the book Generation Me. I'm going to read a short paragraph from a paper on compliance and defiance in early childhood. It goes, Laypersons and researchers agree that compliance with parents is critical to child development. Parents report that obedience is a principal child-rearing objective, and researchers emphasize that compliance facilitates the development of morality, self-regulation, and a range of social competences. When parents elicit compliance, they integrate children into interactions that help children regulate their emotions, internalize prosocial behavior, and in general, coordinate their intentions and actions with the intentions and actions of others. In contrast, non-compliance is often considered a marker for poor parent-child relationships, poor internalization of prosocial values, and increased likelihood of serious behavior problems. Now, I was actually really surprised to see that both parents and researchers put so much emphasis on children complying with parental requests, especially since we learned in the Generation Me episode that parents in this generation put a premium on encouraging children to think for themselves, which seems to contradict the emphasis on obedience that we're seeing here, unless, I suppose, your child learns to think for himself or herself and decides by himself or herself that you're right and, of course, they should obey you. But researchers now understand that strong parent agency and strong child agency are not incompatible. In other words, both parties can have some control in the relationship, although who has what control and how it's asserted have to be renegotiated over and over again as the child gets older. In our culture, the child's power assertion can be seen as having a positive role. The child not only learns how to negotiate, but also that it's possible in the first place to take initiative and oppose what the child sees as injustice. 
Most of us want our children to learn that protesting what a person thinks is unfair is fine, as long as the protest itself isn't defiant or antisocial in its character. So our challenge is to induce compliance where we need it, while demonstrating that we're open to negotiation where the request is reasonable. Part of the reason these conflicts seem to occur seems to be that the child reaches an age where they realize that they can actually assert their own opinion, right about the same time the parents realize that the child isn't just a baby anymore, but should start to learn about some of the social conventions that make both the family work as a unit, and also the child function successfully in the wider world. So the child wants to assert their own ideas, but the parents either want their child to behave in a certain way, or see that other people around the family want the child to behave in a certain way, and then the stage is set for disagreements. But I think we can agree that even if we value independent thinking, there are times when we want our children just to do what we ask them to do, for goodness sake. So let's talk about the factors involved in gaining that compliance. The very highly regarded child psychologist Diana Bomrein described three types of relationships that parents can have with their children. And regular listeners may recall hearing about them in episode 20, where we discussed how can we get my child to do what I want them to do. The first is a permissive relationship where the parents are reluctant to discipline and avoid dealing with their child's problematic behavior. It's pretty well established at this point that an authoritative relationship between parents and children is good for kids, at least if you're white. Authoritative parents allow some give and take, they provide reasons when they make demands of children, and they're open to negotiation. And I say this is the best style if you're white, because the vast majority of research on parenting styles has been done on white children with white parents, but some research shows that an authoritative style, which is where the parents have high demands but provide little in the way of feedback and nurturance, and may also be coercive and make threats towards their children, isn't terrible for black children. White children tend not to do well at all with authoritarian parents, but black children actually fare better. Authoritative parenting might still be best, but authoritarian parenting is okay. So that said, researchers have been curious to find out whether parents that have an authoritative relationship, which remember is the good kind of relationship, with their children experience more or less conflict. Relationship theories say that when children form secure, affectionate, reciprocal relationships with their parents, then they're more likely to want to please their parents and comply with their parents' wishes. So if parents are warm, sensitive, and non-coercive, then children will cooperate most of the time and not be defiant very often. And this has been supported by some research as well. Now this is troubling to me, of course, because I think I've worked pretty hard to develop a warm, sensitive, non-coercive relationship with my daughter, and she still puts up a fight when it's time to get dressed pretty much every damn morning. But let's set that aside for a minute and look at another set of processes in a child's development that are also important, and those are the emerging sense of autonomy and self-efficacy. The researchers in this camp observed that a child doesn't say, no, I don't want to get dressed, just because she wants to be obstinate but because she wants to be autonomous and control what happens in her life. They think that where parents avoid exerting too much control over their children and allow the child to take the lead, the child learns that their wants and actions control the events around them, which is good for their development. So one group of researchers decided to try to test which of these apparently contradictory theories was mostly responsible for defiant resistance. They thought that if young children resist being controlled primarily because their relationship with their mother isn't very good, then even when control isn't an issue, defiant children may display negative behavior towards the mothers. But on the other hand, if young children resist being controlled because they have a strong sense of autonomy, then when control isn't an issue, defiant children may display a more positive behavior towards their mothers. 
These researchers conducted an experiment where mothers and children in a lab setting were put in a room with some things like a pair of eyeglasses and a jug of water with some paper cups that needed parental supervision to use. There were also some toys which the mother and child were to play with together, as well as some attractive toys that the child wasn't allowed to touch. And at the end of 15 minutes playing, the researcher asked the mother to get the child's help with cleaning up. The researchers recorded the interactions between the mothers and children and coded these to analyze them. It turns out that the more defiance children displayed, the more they initiated positive interaction with their mothers. So among children who initiated a lot of positive interactions, 54% were also high in defiance. And among children who didn't initiate a lot of positive interactions, only 21% were high in defiance. Children who smiled more at their mothers and initiated positive interactions with their mothers were significantly more likely to display both high defiance, behavior like taking more toys out of the box at cleanup time, and low passive non-compliance, which is behavior like just standing by while the mothers did the cleaning up. The researchers also timed how long it took children to initiate positive interactions and display non-compliance at cleanup time. And the more quickly children initiated positive interactions, the more they displayed defiant non-compliance. So what is going on here? Why are positive relationships with a parent linked to more defiant behavior? The researchers hypothesized that because sensitive mothers adapt to children's signals, use non-coercive forms of control, and allow children to control the social interaction, their children may develop strong autonomy motivation, the belief that they can control events, and expectations that their mothers will respond favorably when the children assert their needs. And children who exhibit strong defiance may elicit something from parents that helps children to develop ways to resolve frustration and reconcile conflict. Things like rules around social interactions and the fact that others have feelings and needs that should be respected, and potential actions that can be taken to cooperate with parents. A variety of researchers think that children who are securely attached to their parents feel comfortable enough with these parents to be less compliant. It's the ones that aren't comfortable with their parents who are compliant because they're afraid to be defiant. What isn't yet well understood is whether children benefit when parents tolerate defiant behavior or try to inhibit it, but researchers do think that while defiant behavior is a hallmark of problematic development a few years after toddlerhood, there's no indication that defiance in toddlerhood is linked to problems later in life. Okay, so we now have some evidence that just having a toddler who's defiant doesn't mean we're terrible parents. Perhaps we should all carry a card with the link for this episode on it that we can give to strangers who give us snarky looks when our child pitches a fit out in public. But what are we supposed to do when our child doesn't do what we ask? One set of researchers that are focused on parental interventions based on behavioral management trains parents to minimize their use of disciplinary reasoning and instead respond to noncompliance with a series of increasingly forceful tactics to assert their power, things like commands and then single warnings followed by timeouts. The idea is that children eventually learn that if they're being given a command and they refuse now, they're eventually going to get a timeout, so they might as well just obey the command now. But the research supporting this approach is largely based on children who have behavior quote-unquote problems that the parents perceive as so severe that the children have been diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder or its relative conduct disorder, and it's not at all clear to me that these approaches are suitable for children who have not been clinically diagnosed with these disorders. Secondly, since these tactics are among the more common ones parents tend to use to gain compliance in the first place, it seems not inconceivable that the breakdown in relationship that may have occurred as a result of the parents' frequent use of power to gain compliance might be, in part, responsible for the quote-unquote disorder in the first place. 
Professor Wendy Grolnick has done a lot of research on a different approach. One of her major interests is on self-determination theory, so perhaps we shouldn't be surprised where her research lands in this arena. Self-determination theory is the idea that humans have a need to feel as though they have control over their lives and that they're competent, and they're connected to and valued by the people who are important to them. So self-determination theorists believe that acknowledging the child's perspectives, providing choice, displaying empathy, and engaging in joint problem-solving helps to build not only a positive relationship between parent and child, but also the child's own feelings of control, competence, and connectedness. And if these strategies for gaining compliance sort of sound vaguely familiar to you, then they really should, because they are exactly the kinds of strategies that are described in the book, How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, which we discussed with the co-author Julie King back in episode 22 of the podcast. So now we understand a little more clearly that the strategies Julie and her co-author Joanna Faber describe aren't pulled out of thin air. They're actually grounded in research about how children develop a sense of control, competence, and connectedness. So we can look at parental authority in the light of characteristics like empathy, competence, and connectedness, and try to understand what about parental authority, where it's not forced or coercive, makes it helpful to children. Professor Grolnick argues that when parents provide clear and consistent expectations about behavior and predictable consequences, children understand how their actions lead to success or failure, which helps them to feel both in control and competent. By contrast, when parents just assert power over children as a means of gaining compliance, that power isn't connected to any need that the child has, but rather just the parent's need for the child's compliance, so it doesn't help the child to learn or develop. Parents might also wonder, well, should I reward the behavior I want to see to get my child to do more of that and less of the behavior that I don't like? And Professor Grolnick's answer would be, well, you can, and if the reward is unexpected, then that's fine because the child didn't have to do a certain thing to get the reward, which I think sort of defeats the point a bit. But rewards that are contingent on performing a certain behavior control the child but don't support the child's competence and also undermine the child's intrinsic motivation to comply in the future. So if you tell them they can get a certain treat they really like after they clean up their room, for sure they're going to clean up their room right now, but the next time you want them to clean up, they're going to say, where's my treat? So if you're interested in digging into the research on that topic, then episode 20 actually goes into a lot more detail on that, and it was fittingly enough and rather facetiously called, how do I get my child to do what I want them to do? Professor Grolnick concludes that there may be some times when you don't care if your child is intrinsically motivated to do a task, you just want them to do it. And in that case, it doesn't matter if you use rewards. But if you want the behavior to persist, or if you can't or don't want to give a reward one day, then it's best not to start reusing rewards in the first place. There is some evidence that parents naturally, without prompting, adjust their own attempts at achieving compliance depending on the goal. One study asked mothers to get their children to help organize some spoons and forks rather than play with some attractive toys that were also in the room. Some mothers were told the children's compliance would only be assessed in the mother's presence. This was called the short-term condition. The mothers in the long-term condition were told that there would also be a test of the child's cooperation later on, when the mothers weren't in the room. Actually, both groups of children were tested both with and without the mother, but because the mothers in the short-term condition never expected there to be a later test, the researchers thought they might use different strategies to gain their children's compliance. And it turns out they did. Mothers in the long-term condition were more nurturing towards their children before the task began, used reasoning more frequently to get the child to help sort the cutlery, they used more different kinds of explanations, 
and they were also more likely to use reasoning as an initial strategy than mothers in the short-term condition. And the children who were in the long-term condition, so whose mothers had reasoned with them on getting them to sort the cutlery, were more likely to continue sorting the cutlery after their mothers had left the room. So the mothers were using effective strategies at gaining quote-unquote long-term compliance, even when they weren't explicitly told to do this. Although I will say that a task that takes just another five minutes does stretch the definition of long-term just a little. (laughs) Some of us think of long-term as meaning something more like months or years. This finding actually reminded me of some research that I learned in a negotiation strategy class a long time ago. It turns out that adults are susceptible to improving compliance in the face of reasoning as well. A study conducted all the way back in 1978 had researchers try to cut in a line of people waiting to use a photocopier using one of three carefully worded requests. The first was, excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine? The second was, excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine because I have to make copies? And the third was, excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine because I'm in a rush? How many of the people in line do you think let the researcher cut in in each condition? 60% of people waiting to use the copier let the person cut in line if they just asked to use the machine. 94% of people let the person cut in line when they said they were in a rush. But surprisingly, 93% of people waiting to use the copier let the researcher cut in line when they said, may I use the Xerox machine because I have to make copies, even though the phrase, because I have to make copies, was both obvious and didn't give the people standing in line any additional reason to allow the cut-in. The researchers hypothesized that our brains go onto some kind of automatic pilot when we hear that because and don't really evaluate the reason. We only come off the automatic pilot when the stakes are higher. The researchers repeated the experiment saying they needed to make 20 copies, and in that case only the real excuse induced compliance. I'm not aware of any research that assesses what children perceive to be low-stakes or high-stakes requests, or perhaps they haven't learned this distinction yet. Either way, it could be a handy tool to use when you have a long-term goal in mind, and perhaps you could test the high-stakes, low-stakes condition on your own child. One thing I do want to talk about here a bit is punishment. I want to quote the concluding paragraph of a paper by a very well-respected researcher, Dr. Joan Grusek, with whom I happen to disagree. She says... Children have to understand that unacceptable behavior brings with it appropriate consequences that cannot be avoided. Punishment is one of those consequences and, where applied appropriately, a necessary part of the process. Appropriateness is the key concept here, and we as researchers must continue to discover what is, indeed, appropriate. Now I hope I don't shock anyone too much here by saying that my daughter's almost three, and I've never punished her. Never. And honestly, I'm having a hard time thinking of an instance when I would punish her. Which is not to say that there are no consequences to her actions, because that's not the case at all. But I never deliberately attempt to think of something I need to do to her to show her the consequence of her behavior. Because I think the consequence that happens by itself is usually a powerful enough lesson for her, or maybe for me. So some of these things I'm going to tell you about have actually happened, and some have not, but I just want to give you some examples. If she was to get hold of something of mine that I didn't want her to have, perhaps even something I'd previously told her not to touch, then I would consider that my fault for giving her access to it in the first place instead of putting it out of her reach. If she hit me, I would move away from her and say, I don't like it when you hit me, it hurts me, I'm going to move over here. She usually wants to be close to me, so moving away from her is punishment enough. 
if she's messing around with her food at the dinner table, I say, please finish your food or I'm going to take it away. If she continues to mess around with it, then that just means she's had enough to eat and I take the food away. If she were to do something that wasn't safe, of course I'd remove her from the situation and I'd tell her I can't let her do whatever it is and I wouldn't let her be in that situation again until I thought she was ready. And even then I'd talk with her about it first to make sure that she wasn't going to do the thing that I thought was unsafe. Right now we're struggling a lot with getting dressed in the mornings and she loves to wear pajamas at nighttime. So one evening, long enough after the difficult morning we'd had that we were both calm, we talked about how she doesn't much like getting dressed and how long it takes and how I don't like to fight with her about it and how I can tell it doesn't make her happy either. And obviously she's not yet three, so it's mostly me doing the talking at this point, but I'm certainly open to her ideas and I hope that she'll start to express them to me as she gets older. So I let her know that if she can help me to get her dressed in the mornings, she can continue to wear pajamas at nighttime. And on the mornings when she resists getting dressed, I remind her of what we talked about and that I need her help to get her dressed. And that if we don't have time to get dressed, we'll need to wear tomorrow's clothes to bed tonight. Often that's enough to induce compliance, but where it doesn't, we just put on tomorrow's clothes before bed, which does make the next day much easier. The important part is that I don't see this as punishment, and I don't believe she does either, because she's in direct control over whether or not she gets to wear pajamas. At the first sign of resistance in the morning, I remind her of the conversation that we'd had and give her the opportunity to rethink her approach, which she now usually does, now that I've taken the time to think through this approach. Before I came up with the idea of wearing tomorrow's clothes to bed that night, she would just kind of sit there and say, no, I don't want to. And I would sit there and say, well, yes, I want you to. And we'd be at the stalemate that didn't get anywhere. And if she still decides that she doesn't want to wear her clothes, then I get her dressed anyway, because going to school in pajamas is not an option in our family, and she wears tomorrow's clothes to bed that night. And honestly, I don't see that as punishment, because I'm basically doing everything I can not to threaten her, and to give her as much control as possible over the situation, while still holding my ground on something that I think is important. Now, where I draw the line on wearing pajamas out of the house is irrelevant, but the point is that even in the face of what I perceive to be active defiance, I try and give her as much control as I can while still achieving my goal. One psychology student actually wrote a doctoral thesis on this and found that offering alternatives explain virtually all of the effect that reasoning-induced compliance more effectively than any other parental strategy, regardless of the type of noncompliance, the toddler's temperament, or the mother's characteristics. What's important is that both of the choices, in this case, complying with getting dressed or wearing tomorrow's clothes to bed, are acceptable to me. My daughter is also free to suggest alternatives herself, and sometimes she already does suggest them. She doesn't love brushing her teeth right now either, and she'll suggest brushing them in the living room, although I can't say for the life of me why it's better to brush your teeth in the living room than in the bathroom, but I really think it's that she appreciates the control she has over the situation by saying where she wants to brush them. Her feeling a sense of control seems to de-escalate the situation, so we don't get to the point of a tantrum, and I try to fine-tune my own reactions to her, adding more explanations and offering her more control to avoid that tantrum state. You might want to observe your own strategies when you're dealing with non-compliance as well. You may well find that you do these things too already, and now you're more consciously aware of them, you may choose to use certain strategies more than others. Going back to something we talked about in the episode on the book Generation Me, I use my own irritation as a guide to where these limits should be set, because when I'm irritated, it means my values have been overstepped. 
that allows me to set a limit that I'm happy to hold because I know the limit is real and not just something I set arbitrarily. And as we already learned, consistent boundaries help a child feel competent and have a sense of agency. I also try and keep in mind that she's still learning the language, and research has shown that toddlers are less likely to comply with a maternal request when they don't understand it. Of course, I still want to improve her vocabulary as well, so I might say, I need you to help me out, I need you to cooperate. Now she uses the word cooperate by herself because I scaffolded her learning of that word, but I still made sure to use very clear language to be sure she's not failing to comply just because she doesn't understand what I'm asking her to do. You can also watch for your own child's use of reasoning in other areas of your lives together as an indicator that they're ready for more advanced reasoning and negotiations over their compliance. So I hope this episode has given you a bit of consolation if you feel that you have a good relationship with your child but are still exasperated that they don't comply with your requests a lot of the time. Because as we've learned, that's really pretty normal. It's what we do next that has profound implications not only for our child's development, but for our relationship with them as well. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to read the references I used for today's episode, you can find them at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash defiance. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and sign up for our mailing list at yourparentingmojo.com to receive a free gift. Seven relationship-based strategies to support your children's development while making parenting just a little bit easier on you. For more respectful, research-based parenting ideas to help kids thrive, we'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.